Disrupting Japan, Episode 91. Disrupting Japan is sponsored by Justa. Now, I've known the team at Justa for years, and I've been recommending them long before they became a sponsor. Justa is really the only recruiting site that gets bilingual startups. Whether you're looking for American engineers or Japanese sales staff or the other way around, Justa can help you out. Unlike recruiting companies, they are priced to be very startup friendly, and unlike job boards, they're an active part of the startup community here, and they're trusted by some of the best talent Japan has to offer. So drop by justa.io and see what they're about. Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Once again, I've got a special show for you today. There will be no guests, no beer, no playful banter with someone speaking English as a second language. Today, it's just you and me. For the next 20 minutes, I'll be whispering in your ear about something I consider very important, but That not enough people are talking about. It's been a while since I've done one of these solo shows. They tend to be among my most popular episodes, and I get a lot of requests for them, and I love doing them. I'd like to do more, but you might be surprised at the amount of research and revision that goes into these solo shows. Not to mention the times I get two thirds of the way through putting one together, only to realize that the primary thrust of my argument is flawed. And that the whole thing needs to be reworked. Unfortunately, I'm not really smart enough to just turn on the microphone and talk for 20 minutes. It's so much easier sitting down and talking to amazingly creative Japanese startup founders and innovators who are doing and saying crazy things all on their own. Well, today I'd like to share something with you that first occurred to me about a year ago. And the more I research it, And the more people I speak with, the more I became convinced it's right. I haven't talked about it a lot before because, well, frankly, it's something a lot of people in the startup community here will disagree with, and some will disagree in very strong terms. But it's important. So let's strap in, hear from our sponsor, and get right to it. Some of Japan's largest companies are starting open innovation programs and actively reaching out to global startups. They're new at this, and that's where Crew, with two W's, comes in. Crew runs corporate startup accelerators for companies like Toyota and Panasonic and dozens more, and these programs are one of the best ways to jumpstart your business in Japan. Many are open to global startups, and they're completely free. Now, I've known and worked with the Crew team. And they're probably doing more than anyone to bridge the gap between corporate Japan and global startups. So drop by crew with two W's dot ME slash four hyphen startups and get started. Over the next 20 years, startups are not going to revive the Japanese economy, nor are they going to be the primary driver of innovation in this country. Don't misunderstand, startups have a role to play. A very important role to play, but they will not be the primary drivers of change. No. Japan's mid sized companies will be the primary drivers of both large scale innovation and economic growth for the next 10 years. 
For this to make sense, we're going to have to look at the role that mid-sized companies play in the Japanese economy today. We'll then step back in time, both to see how things got this way and to understand why Japan is at such a pivotal juncture today. And then we'll look at how things are likely to shake out over the next 15 years or so. Now, to the average podcast listener, this would sound like a dry topic. But you, as a Disrupting Japan listener, are of a special breed, and you'll be rewarded for coming with me deep, deep into the weeds. If you come along, I promise that in 20 minutes, you'll have a new way of looking at mid-sized companies in Japan, and perhaps a new way of looking at Japanese startups as well. You see, mid-sized enterprises are the middle child in Japan's corporate family. The large companies, the brands you know, Toyota, Mitsubishi, Panasonic, Mitsui, for the most part, are the remnants of the once incredibly powerful Keiretsu groups. These companies are the oldest child. Everyone knows who they are. They're in the news. They have influence. They work closely with the Japanese government, both the legislators and the bureaucracy, to ensure that the needs of Japanese large corporations are reflected in national policy and in international trade agreements. And of course, the vast majority of government grant money, primary contracts, and economic stimulus programs are directed at these large companies. Japanese startups are the little brother. Startup companies have captured Japan's hearts and imagination, not because of their economic impact, but because they are new. They say, do, and build crazy things, and the country loves them for it. Startups get fawning press attention for the smallest of achievements. Oh, wow, you shipped a product. That's awesome. We're so proud of you. Here, have a million dollars. Japan's medium enterprises, however, have been the child stuck in the middle. For the past 50 years, they've been quietly and reliably forming the backbone of the large company's supply chains, employing most of the workers and often thanklessly providing a steady stream of innovation, doing the bulk of the work and getting almost none of the attention. And you know, every time Japan faces economic problems, it's these medium enterprises that bear the brunt of the sacrifices. They lack the connections needed to arrange government bailouts, and when the large enterprises are hurting, they relentlessly squeeze the medium enterprise suppliers. A bit later on, we'll talk about why they've traditionally been able to get away with that and how this power dynamic is about to change. But first, let's look at the simple reason why the economic future of Japan depends much more on medium enterprises than on large enterprises or startups. Okay, so let's nail down what exactly we mean when we're talking about large, medium, and small enterprises. For today's discussion, I'm going to use Medi's definition because, well, they're Medi and they're the ones that decide how these terms are defined. So, for manufacturing companies, Medi defines a medium enterprise as one having between 20 and 300 employees, firms with less than 20 employees or small enterprises, and those with more than 300 are considered large enterprises. 
For non-manufacturing industries, medium enterprises are those with between 5 and 100 employees. So medium enterprises are defined as a bit smaller in Japan than they are in much of Europe or the United States. Now, with our definitions out of the way, the most important thing to understand about the influence of medium enterprises on the Japanese economy is that medium enterprises are the Japanese economy. They employ 54% of the Japanese workforce, so more than large and small enterprises put together. And they account for 48% of all corporate revenue in Japan. So with medium enterprises responsible for so much economic output, what explains their lack of influence over economic policy and their lack of bargaining power with their customers? Well, we need to step back a few decades to understand how Japanese medium enterprises got themselves into this mess. Then we'll examine how they're going to get themselves and the rest of Japan out of it. It goes back to the Keiretsu, or I suppose the Zaibatsu if you really want to go way back. But basically, after the war, Japanese industry was organized into competing corporate groups called Keiretsu. Each Keiretsu had its own major bank, trading company, real estate company, heavy manufacturer, etc. The major firms in the Keiretsu were bound together by cross-shareholding and interlocking directorships. And these large firms were supported by a vast array of lesser-known large and medium enterprises that made up their supply chain. These supply chains were tightly controlled, and with only a handful of well-known exceptions, a medium enterprise that was part of one Keiretsu supply chain would not sell outside of its Keiretsu group. The fortunes of these companies were inextricably linked with those of the Keiretsu itself. Now, this arrangement sounds terrible for the supplier, but it was not as bad as it sounds. Particularly in the early days, the large Keiretsu companies took an almost paternal interest in the medium enterprises that formed their supply chains. The large firms would provide technology transfer and training, they would often partially fund research and development at these firms, and best of all, they would guarantee them a certain level of sales and revenues. The owners and employees of these mid-size enterprises did not become wealthy, but their business was simple and stable. They were protected from most market forces and never needed to develop sales or marketing functions, so they could focus on product development and production. This arrangement worked well for everyone, particularly the large companies. As long as the economy was expanding rapidly, there was always enough money to go around. But things began to change in the 90s. The yen became stronger, and that pushed up the price of Japanese goods overseas. And the large Japanese firms were no longer innovating the way they had been in the 60s and 70s. With money tight, the big Keiretsu firms began to squeeze their supply chains. They made other cuts as well, of course. But these mid-sized companies bore the brunt of the suffering within the Keiretsu groups. Not only were these firms pressured to relentlessly cut costs, but the dominant firms looked to these mid-sized companies as a way to solve their new staffing problem. You see, 
The large Japanese corporations had basically promised their entire workforce lifetime employment. Now, this made sense when labor was in demand. Since no large firms accepted mid-career transfers, it kept salaries low and employees loyal. Sure, there was always some deadwood who couldn't pull their weight, but since there never seemed to be enough staff, you could always find something for them to do. All that changed when growth slowed and sales started slumping. These unproductive employees became a real problem both in terms of morale and productivity. Well, the leaders of the Keiretsu groups came up with a perfect solution. Just dump this deadwood into subsidiary companies and into the mid-sized enterprises that made up their supply chain. And if those mid-sized companies didn't like it, well, of course they didn't like it. But if they wanted to stay in business, they would put these loafers on their payroll. Over the last 10 years, things have gotten even harder for these mid-sized firms. After stoically enduring decades of ignominy and insult, the corporate leaders of the Keiretsu groups began diversifying their supply chains and importing cheaper products from China, Southeast Asia, and around the world. From the point of view of the large corporations, this optimization of their supply chain was clearly the right move, and it was, quite frankly, decades overdue. But the sales and revenue guarantees that those mid-sized companies had come to depend on are quickly going extinct. And with their disappearance, we're going to see a lot of mid-sized companies being driven into bankruptcy. And that's a great thing. In fact, the future of the Japanese economy depends on it. I mean, obviously, it's not a great thing for those who go bankrupt. It's terrible. But let's look at the transformative shift that this trend has already put in motion. You see, cut loose from their keretsu ties and sales guarantees, a lot of Japan's mid-sized manufacturing companies are suddenly having to learn how to market themselves and to sell their products. And since the Japanese domestic market is one of flat growth and declining population, that means a lot of these companies are beginning to look overseas for growth. And that's a fantastic thing. Because a handful of these mid-sized Japanese companies are going to do incredibly well overseas. And that is more than going to make up for those that are driven out of business. Why am I so confident about this? Because Japan's mid-sized companies are making some of the most amazing and innovative products in the world right now. I know, I know, I understand you're skeptical. And I thought a lot about the best way to prove this to you. There are plenty of Japanese government reports and official statistics I could use. But let's face it, the Japanese government is not really the most authoritative source of information about innovation. So instead... I'm going to let Apple prove it to you. Take a look down at your iPhone that as a Disrupting Japan listener, you have a 52% chance of owning. I mean, not you specifically. You're listening to this on the same device you always use, and you have a 100% chance of owning that device. I mean that statistically, 52% of Disrupting Japan listeners are listening to this show on an iOS device. But I digress. My point is that we're about to dive into Apple's supply chain for the iPhone because it's going to teach us a lot about innovation in Japanese mid-sized companies. Now, Apple is in an enviable position 
when it comes to sourcing parts and labor for its products. They have the resources to actively and aggressively seek out companies all over the world that provide the ideal level of product or service required to create these products. Their supply chain is really a best of breed for relevant technology. And this supply chain is truly global. There are over 700 companies that are involved in the manufacture of an iPhone. And do you know what country most of these companies are in? It's China. I mean, of course, it's China, with 249 companies. But in second place is Japan, with 139 companies. Japan's followed by the U.S. with 60 companies, and then things fall off pretty quickly, with Taiwan at 42 and South Korea at 32. And then there's 26 other nations filling out the rest of the vendors. So, 139 Japanese companies are in the iPhone supply chain. That's less than half the number of China, but more than double that of the United States. So, who are these companies exactly? Well, some of them are the large enterprises that you would expect. Japan Display, Murata Manufacturing, Sharp, Sony, Toshiba, TDK. But the bulk of these companies are names you've probably never heard of and are mid-sized rather than large enterprises. But for both the large and medium-sized enterprises, but the medium-sized firms in particular, it's worth asking what makes them so attractive. It's easy to understand why China is in first place. You can produce goods at a massive scale and at low cost. But why is Japan in such a strong second place? That's a much more interesting question. In fact, all of the things that make Chinese companies an attractive addition to a corporate supply chain are almost the opposite in Japan. China has low labor costs, few environmental regulations, a large and flexible workforce, and very loose labor protections. Japan, on the other hand, faces a labor shortage, requires high salaries, and a very expensive physical plant. And furthermore, Japan has some of the toughest environmental and labor protection laws on the planet. And yet, in this case, they seem to be outcompeting the rest of the world. The simple answer is the incredible innovation that exists at thousands of Japanese mid-sized companies. These mid-sized firms have always existed in the shadow of their keiretsu, quietly producing technology that always seems to be five years ahead of what is coming out of Korea and Taiwan. None of these Japanese firms are low-cost producers. They are all global innovators. You know, there's a lot of talk in the United States today about bringing back manufacturing jobs, and that's a worthwhile goal. However, most politicians seem to think that the answer is making the U.S. more like China by loosening environmental and labor safeguards with a focus on reducing cost. I think these policymakers and politicians would be better served to look at nations like Japan and Germany, who have much stricter regulations and much higher cost, but still manage to be global manufacturing leaders while providing their workers with a high quality of life. There really is a workable model for bringing back good manufacturing jobs. In fact, 
Looking at the U.S., Japan is a lot like California in terms of innovation in small and medium-sized companies. Salaries and rents are very high, and you can no longer survive as a low-cost producer. You need to be the best in the world. The regulatory framework in terms of environmental and labor law and tax policy is not particularly business-friendly, but these laws are widely popular among the citizens, and they're not going to be changing anytime soon. But once again, I digress. We're here to talk about what is about to happen in Japan's mid-sized global innovators. So Apple has the resources to find them on their own. But as more and more of these companies have their keretsu ties cut, more and more of them will begin aggressive overseas sales and marketing. Why overseas? Well, with domestic demand flat, the global markets are the only real path to growth. Okay, you say. This all makes perfect logical sense. We know what should happen. We know what must happen. But what can we say most likely will happen to Japan's mid-sized companies over the next 10 or 15 years. Let's look at some hard numbers. Or perhaps I should say, let's listen to some hard numbers. To be sure, there's going to be a lot of pain among Japanese medium enterprises, and a large number of them are going to be going out of business. At the moment, the Japanese government is prolonging that pain by extending loans to weak and unviable small and medium enterprises around the country rather than focusing on business expansion. Although there are some good government programs designed to help Japanese companies expand abroad, most of the government efforts are in terms of financial support. In fact, in 2016, 20% of all SME financing across the entire country was made either directly from the Japanese government or guaranteed by the Japanese government. So clearly, this is not sustainable. Also, since we're looking for companies that can sell into global markets, we need to set aside that 75% of Japan's 660,000 medium-sized enterprises that are in local or services-based business. Once we do that, we're left with 165,000 mid-sized Japanese enterprises with at least the potential to go global. Japan's economic future, the ability once again to be recognized as a global innovator, really depends on these 165,000 mid-sized companies, or rather, the relatively small subset that will survive in the coming era of global competition. So, why do I place my faith in the mid-sized enterprises rather than the large enterprises or the startups? Partially, it's because the mid-sized companies are the ones with their backs against the wall right now. They can't coast on massive cash reserves and lucrative government contracts the way the large enterprises can, nor can they chase investment money and rely on a large domestic market for growth the way that most startups in Japan do. I mean, growth looks different for startups. Of course, Japanese startups and Japanese mid-sized companies are both operating in the same domestic Japanese market. But a startup with $100,000 in annual earnings can easily grow at 100% a year without looking overseas. But an established mid-sized company with $100 million in revenues 
simply does not have that option. In order to survive, Japanese mid-sized companies have to solve real problems for real global clients. But the good news for them is that many of them are already doing that. There is far more world-class technology in Japanese mid-sized companies than there currently is in Japanese startups. And that's certainly not a criticism of some of the truly amazing startups in Japan. It's a simple statement of fact. Even if we focus our attention on the fraction of the medium enterprises that have the potential to go global, those 165,000 firms, we're talking about a scale orders of magnitude larger than Japanese startups and with innovative technology that has already proven itself in global markets. The twin challenges Japan's medium enterprises face today if they're to transform from niche manufacturers with tight margins into highly profitable global brands are first, leveraging and productizing their technology, and second, letting the world's consumers know about it. And here, I believe Japanese mid-sized firms can, and will, learn from startups. The same techniques used by startups to inexpensively and rapidly develop and validate a new product can be used by these mid-sized companies. The same techniques and tools that allow San Francisco startups to quickly build a global customer base can also be used by Japanese mid-sized firms. Okay, okay. Even from here, I can hear you rolling your eyes at the thought of Japanese mid-sized companies being able to operate this way. You have every right to be skeptical, particularly if you've worked with mid-sized firms here. Yes, many are frustratingly conservative and even provincial, but they're watching the sands shifting beneath their feet right now. These CEOs know that they need to change or die, and they will need to do it soon. Nobody wants to be remembered as being the CEO who had to shut down the business. Will they be able to make that change? I think they will. At least some of them will. And that will be enough. If you're still skeptical, and I don't blame you if you are, rather than thinking of the typical or perhaps stereotypical Japanese medium-sized business, think about the outliers. After all, our pool of promising mid-sized companies is 165,000 firms. If only 1% or 2% of these firms begin successfully adopting modern product ideation, validation, and growth techniques, the impact on the Japanese economy will be transformative. Personally, I think a lot more than 1% or 2% are going to succeed, and they have a much greater chance of making this transformation than large enterprises do. Changing the culture in the direction of a 200-person company is far, far easier than changing the culture or the direction of a 20,000-person company, let alone a 100,000-person company like NEC. A 300-person company, and remember, Medi defines mid-sized companies as having no more than 300 employees. A 300-person company can easily be turned around by a charismatic and motivated CEO who has a real vision for the future and they can be put on track to growing into a 2,000-person and then a 20,000-person company. In fact, Japan's mid-sized companies are not so different in size than the early to mid-growth startups in the U.S., 
and they could learn to be just as agile. Now, I travel a lot, and I speak at a lot of startup and innovation conferences. And everywhere I go around the world, everywhere wants to be the next Silicon Valley. I'm always hearing that such and such a city is the Silicon Valley of Japan or Germany or the Midwest or the East Coast. And I wish people would simply stop that. There's never going to be another Silicon Valley, and that's fine. Each nation or location needs to find their own way, to learn what their own strengths and weaknesses are, and to take the best practices from around the world and create something unique, something that can't be duplicated elsewhere. And you know something? No country does this better than Japan. After Japan's defeat in World War II, Many economists working with the occupation government concluded that Japan would never be able to fully recover economically. Its infrastructure had been utterly destroyed, and she had no historical framework on which to build a competitive, capitalistic democracy. Many of these economists concluded that Japan would always remain kind of a protectorate of the United States. Well, we know how that turned out. Japanese industries studied the best practices from around the world and then adopted those practices to create a uniquely Japanese system that leveraged this nation's strengths. And 30 years later, Japan had transformed from a hopeless economic basket case into the second largest economy in the planet. Having completely redefined the automotive, watch, consumer electronics, camera, and other industries along the way. Never underestimate how fast and completely Japan can change once that decision is made. And this time, I think it's pretty clear that change is going to come from Japan's mid-sized companies rather than the large enterprises or the startups. The large firms are sitting on piles of cash and are not facing the kind of existential threat that would force them to change. There are amazing things going on at Japanese startups, but there are just not enough of them to really move the needle economically. At least, not yet. And to be fair, most successful startups technically are mid-sized companies. No, once again, it's left to Japan's mid-sized enterprises to do the heavy lifting. We already know that some of these companies produce some of the best technology in the world, and that they have access to the same tools and techniques that the world's most innovative startups do. In many ways, medium-sized enterprises in Japan today are in a similar situation as the Keiretsu themselves were back in the 1960s. They're largely unknown to global consumers. They have a domestic market that can't support the level of sales needed to really fuel economic expansion. They have technology that has been proven competitive in a global market. And most important, perhaps, they have a widely available and tested set of global best practices that they can bring to bear in solving these problems. Perhaps the CEOs of Japan's medium-sized enterprises can take inspiration from Akio Morita, the co-founder of Sony. Now, Morita was a genius in turning technology into transformative products, maybe even more so than Steve Jobs, although a generation earlier. In the 50s and 60s, Sony found themselves in much the same situation that many of today's mid-sized companies do. They had great technology, 
And there are plenty of companies around the world that wanted to include that technology as part of their supply chain, either as manufacturing components or as an OEM, where they would put their own brand on the Sony products. Morita famously refused to even consider such deals and insisted that Sony would make its own products and build its own brand. And in the decades to come, this small Japanese company grew into a giant and transformed industry after industry, introducing the transistor radio, the Trinitron TV, the audio CD, the first home video recorder, the Walkman. And I know it's hard for our younger listeners to believe, but at the time of Morita's death in 1999, Sony was by far the most admired brand in America. Far ahead of such giants as Coca-Cola, GM, or Apple. Those who doubt Japan's ability to productize innovative technology have a very short memory. Of course, things will turn out differently this time. They always do. But with all the major media attention focused on Japan's biggest and most famous brands, and all the startup media focused on the undeniably cool and quirky little startups springing up all over Japan, the real agent of change is being overlooked. This time, change is going to come from the middle. If you have thoughts about some of the ideas we just talked about or about these solo episodes in general, I'd love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 091 and let's talk about it. Or, if you prefer, follow us on Facebook or Twitter or drop by the Disrupting Japan LinkedIn group. I'd love to hear from you. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.